0: Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Mike Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Editor at The Insider. Uh, this week, I'm joined by my friend, Faisal Atani. He's the Senior Director at the New Lines Institute in Washington, D.C., um, a longstanding friend, colleague, ally, comrade, um, mutual or, or, com- or fellow observer of tragedy and catastrophe in the region we call the Middle East. And that's the reason that I've uh, invited him on. Uh, So he and I, and our other friend Hassan Hassan, who's the co-author with me of uh, our ISIS book, Inside the Army of Terror, have been watching. um, I guess what you what would you call it? In in a sense of of sort of forced detachment, forced emotional detachment, but also commingled with horror at unfolding events in the region. Um, But we're not here to talk about sort of the the, the 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 misery of uh the israel hamas war we're here to talk about regional implications of the war um so Faisal is a, uh was born in uh lebanon and is a acute uh, observer of lebanese politics and uh you know the, the gift that keeps on giving and we we were both watching in real time and chatting with each other about hassan nasrallah's speech the other day for those of you who don't know, he's the Secretary General of Hezbollah, uh, without question, Iran's most powerful pl- proxy in the region. And this speech had been kind of teased in a Marvel movie sort of way, with sort of Nasrallah not facing the camera, but sort of wandering wraith-like across, you know, the the the, the screen uh in anticipation of the grand pronouncement that everyone was waiting for that he was going to um declare that hezbollah was opening a new front in the war against israel that didn't happen uh and Faisal and i have slightly different takes on this uh, he wrote a piece in new lines i don't want to step on your toes and try to summarize what what your argument was but let's just let's put my argument up first and then you can you can sort of contrast so i i saw Nasrallah's speech speeches very anticlimactic very boring um mercifully it was about one one hundredth of the length of the typical fidel castro speech but tended to be the same kind of uh, exercise in prolonged agonized tedium um you know seemed to know quite a bit about the internal dynamics of the israeli cabinet seemed to be uh, a frequent reader of Haaretz and the israeli media um said and this was the most interesting part that you know, this was completely planned, orchestrated, and executed, meaning the October seventh atrocities against Israelis by the Palestinian side. Nothing to do with us, uh, which is wink wink um code for Iran had nothing to do with it. That's obviously a hot button issue deciding if or determining if if the Islamic Republic was in any way, shape, or form involved in this pogrom. Uh, Faisal, what was your read of the speech? Because I know you you listen um you do the hard work of listening to everything Nasrallah says, and you have a kind of a, a your own special exegesis. uh you know he's a he's a smart guy, say what you will about him. and he he's a clever communicator. Uh, and you you wrote this essay for new lines. Let's start there and then I think we can sort of zoom out into broader implications of where this war is headed uh, and whether or not Iran and of course the United States are going to be dragged into it at some point.
1: Yeah, no. Thanks. I, I appreciate the introduction as well. Uh, of course, it's part of the absurdity of my life and of being Lebanese that I have to listen to all these speeches, you know, to determine the fate of the country and what's going to happen in the region. Um, so, so look, um, I, I I don't necessarily think I don't think the opposite is true of what you of what you said. I, I think that a lot of people perceive this as a kind of neutered version of Hassan al which it was to an extent because this is a man who's used to having a very high degree of control over his immediate environment, his organization. They're very loyal and disciplined. They've mastered the Lebanese landscape both physically and you know, strategically and mentally. Uh, so now we're kind of seeing Hezbollah that's in a different spot. Uh, they're kind of stuck in the sense that if they go and pick a fight, like a real fight with the Israelis, obviously they're going to get smashed. Uh, they're not going to be you know, defeated with a capital D, but they're going to be punished. So is their population and base of support. Uh, on the other hand, if they don't do anything, then what are they for, right? I mean, this is a kind of narrative of Hezbollah is because, you know, we'd be gone in a day and we'd put down our weapons, but look at Israel, right? And we can't, You can't afford to do without us, so we have to fight. And so it's a very tough situation for them. It is not the typical Hassan calculation. calculations. Uh, the only thing I kind of saw as another layer, basically, of this speech is that uh, I think that these people, uh, there's a certain set of things that are true believers in. Uh, one of those things is that they think they really do believe Israel. I mean, I'm not going to say the IRGC believes this because this is a bit different, you know, uh, but uh, but Naswala and Hezbollah do believe this is a kind of it's a dangerous but weak country. Uh, You know, it knows how to kill people and it's very violent, but at the end of the day, you know, there's no kind of real core there. It's not really a country or a nation. And if you push it and you provoke it, it kind of crumbles apart. Uh, It it may be violent in the process, but it doesn't really know how to defend itself. And it's not willing to pay the cost of defending itself. Uh, This is a recurrent theme. And part of that theme is that asymmetric actors uh, they have a chance of performing better against the Israelis than what we would think. Uh, and, of course, Hezbollah's own experience, you know, fighting the Israelis in South Lebanon during the occupation and fighting them in 06, you know, it's kind of sporadic wars. Uh, they've done all right. I mean, considering how much more powerful Israel is. Uh, but I felt that there was a little bit of projection onto Hamas about uh, the about the Hezbollah situation and the muqawama as Hezbollah's appreciated it. You know, Gaza is not South Lebanon, and uh, you know Hamas is not Hezbollah. To make an obvious point, uh, so I kind of felt that he was hedging. Remember that who he's talking to most of all, most of all is not you and I, or even the international community. He's talking to the Shia in Lebanon, and uh, he's explaining to them the behavior of the parties. And he's also telling them, "But we are waiting and seeing and seeing what happens on the ground and the performance of Hamas." This was a few days ago, right? So. As I understand it now, I'm not a military expert, but I've been watching the ground operation in Gaza. There's a little more clarity now to how it's going than there was back then. And that may be why we have another speech coming up in a few days. Uh, But it does seem, and I don't want to talk for too long about this particular aspect, because like I said, this isn't my expertise. It does seem that Hamas is struggling and um, they... Some of the things you would expect them to give an army a hard time in, in an urban environment, you know, killing their tanks, killing a lot of people, stuff like that, that isn't really happening. I mean, the Israelis are losing men, but they, they're not able to stop them. And uh, so they're going wherever they want. And it's slow, it's ugly, but it's not what you want to be if you're Hamas right now.
0: So, you know, the point you raised earlier that, I mean, Nasrallah kept referring to Israel as a cobweb. You know something that can be pulled apart quite easily. Although, ironically, cobwebs are notoriously very robust, powerful, and um, tensile—at least for an insect. Um, Not to go down that road of metaphors, but anyway, um, but but Israel has never had an attack against itself like it did on October seventh. I mean, this was the worst mass atrocity of Jews since the Holocaust, right? So, in a way. It's this proposition that he's kept in the back of his mind has never been tested, Uh, you know, not certainly during the occupation or 2006 Israel Lebanon war, and I mean, if you kind of read the or take the temperature of Israeli society again through the Israeli media, there is overwhelming support to eradicate Hamas. However, you go about doing that, or whether it can be done, is a separate question. But uh, you know, there's there's absolute contempt for Netanyahu who's seen as a criminal and a thug, and I don't think is long for this world politically. I mean, I think on that issue, it's it's almost been decided in advance. But there's also a determination that this they had to do this. They had to launch a ground operation, and they will, at, at the end of this, go down into, you can't even call it the basement. I mean, I think there's kind of an underground city beneath Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, where Hamas's political leadership and their military command is long been known to be headquartered. So it will it will culminate, I think, with the destruction of Hamas in their center of gravity, whether they still have a presence in Gaza. I'm sure that they will. They Christ, they have a presence in the West Bank. Uh, and, you know, ideologically, I don't think this movement is going to be defeated so easily. But all of these things to one side, to your point, do you see Hezbollah's calculation, and really we're talking about Iran's calculation here, is okay, maybe Hamas bit off more than it could chew. Maybe it was a victim of catastrophic success in, in this operation. Uh, and now, you know, w- we are seeing sort of the beginning stages of uh, understanding or resolution that that Hamas is finished as a proxy. And now is the time to you know, um, kind of reconcile other interests which have evolved in the region uh, in the last 20 years in particular. I mean, it's interesting to me that, and I want to talk to you about the U.S. uh, response to this, if not U.S. intervention at some point, that the the proxies that have been activated by Iran to chivy American troops and America's strategic interests in the region are not Hezbollah, uh, but... You know, the Islamic resistance of Iraq and the Shia militia groups that the IRGC has stood up, um, particularly over the last decade in Syria. So these are the guys that are sending drones at U.S. uh, air bases, Al Assad and al-Tamf in Syria, uh, and quite a a number of them. I think we're up to 40 or more attacks, uh, most of which have resulted in, I mean, injuries sustained by American personnel, traumatic brain injuries, which is no small thing. But uh, I think one fatality of an American contractor who had a heart attack during one of these things, right? But it's 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 only a matter of time, it seems to me, um, before somebody gets killed, meaning American troops get killed by these guys. And yet, I I don't know how we would kind of couch or frame this, but it it doesn't seem like Iran is is all in, as it were. You know, I mean the Houthis too are, are are launching rockets, many of which miss the mark by a wide margin and wind up landing in Jordan, but this is another story. What I mean to say is it seems that it, there's a great deal of reluctance on Tehran's part to really kind of say, this is the moment now, let's let's just go all out and go to war with Israel and try to wipe it off the map. They they seem to be calculating a little bit more savvily, yeah? And that, that is reflected in Nasrallah's behavior and his communication thus far. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, Um you know, in a sense, you know, if Hezbollah has constraints, uh, you can th- think about Iran as being 100 times more constrained than Hezbollah because it's a, I mean, it's a country with a government right. and and it, it's a severe internal problems, as is already. Um, I don't know that I'm not in, you know, these IRGC rooms when these conversations are had, uh, but they're more or less the people running the foreign policy and the strategy against the U.S. and Israel. Uh, I, I probably, if I had to guess, I would probably say they kind of in the abstract believe that Israel is not long for this world, but I don't think they think they can destroy it. And, uh, and obviously Israel is a nuclear power at the end of the day. You know, the Iranians only have so much that they can do against them. Uh, these things about the Houthis and the Iraqis and the Syrians is somewhere over the last like 10, 15 years in the Middle East, when so many of the states became kind of jokes of governments and they're no longer really governments. Uh, like in Syria and Yemen and, frankly, Iraq, no offense to anybody, but um, those places became kind of like Wild West places where you can push the envelope and, you know, the other side will push you back. But yeah. kind of, you know, it's all it's all acceptable. It's within the realm of, like, acceptable behavior. Right. Uh, whereas Lebanon, interestingly, Lebanon, which is arguably the weakest state of all, uh, because of Hezbollah, became a place where you have to be very, very careful about who dies and who's killed and who does which operations. And you can see that both sides are being careful in Lebanon. So I don't think, I think that's just the kind of new normal that we're in, where, uh, you know, you have some casualties, some provocations, but everybody kind of understands that it's a fluid situation. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if something lands in the wrong place and too many people die, then all bets are off, right? It, uh, yeah, well, it I mean,
0: I mean, the other side of the ledger here is the the American response to these Iranian provocations and or attacks, I should call them, has been muted, to say the least. Um, so far in this cycle, Biden administration launched one attack, I think, on oh, an arms depot or warehouse in, um, uh, not in Al-Qaim, on the other side, uh, Abu Kamal um, mm-hmm. in eastern Syria. Now, this is notoriously one of the the points of of transit for Al Qaeda in Iraq during the U.S. occupation of Iraq, and then even more notoriously, ISIS at the height of their power, and now it's kind of um, a, a sort of occupied territory of the IRGC and its consortium of militias. But this attack did not seem to result in any fatalities, certainly not of IRGC personnel. If anything, Israel has been conducting more sorties on the Syrian-Iraqi border than the United States has. And so today I saw some State Department or probably Pentagon spokesperson say that, uh, well, you know, we uh, we don't go tit for tat, we, we pick our targets very strategically. But I'm wondering what's so strategic about it. A warehouse that has been all but abandoned you know in the Jazeera. um it seems like there's a great deal of um uh, a, a a motive to de-escalate on the part of the united states and the iranians seem to be playing with us for lack of a better term they, they want to see what they can get away with they want to see what our threshold is but i mean you know, i read recently that one of the drones that was sent i think it was um i i forget which uh Airbase, it impacted, but basically this thing with its warhead attached, embedded or or landed in the roof of the barracks and didn't explode. But had it exploded, there's a very good chance there would have been American uh, fatal- fatalities, and God knows what the response would have been then. I mean, what it's hard for sort of the the layman. I mean, hell, it's hard for experts and people who who study this conf- or this part of the world very closely to understand kind of the 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 game that's being played here um so obviously you know the successive u.s administrations even going back to george w bush who was prevailed upon by david petraeus to start bombing factories in iran that were manufacturing the explosively formed penetrators which were killing uh, u.s servicemen and women in iraq um in record numbers i mean the irgc according to our own in-house pentagon history of the occupation of iraq Is responsible for more american military deaths than any other entity save al-qaeda in iraq stroke isis right and yet Mm -hmm. a great deal of reluctance to escalate the fight against iran mostly this has been confined to sort of gray zone activities or shadow wars or i mean hell the israelis they seem to be much more willing to conduct targeted assassinations particularly of nuclear scientists uh, we've helped with cyber warfare. There have been joint operations, most um, famously taking out Immag Mugniya. speaking of Hezbollah, who in Damascus in, I think, what, 2008, that was a joint CIA Mossad operation. But now there seems to be consensus. Don't pick a fight. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I forgot about the most banner or signature um, event, which was the killing of Qasem Soleimani under Donald Trump. Nobody really thought that was going to happen, but it only happened because Trump was president, right? But but there does seem to be a great deal of uh, desire to contain the conflict to Gaza Strip and not have it escalate or not have it spiral out of control. And that, that by the way, obtains on both sides, both the American side and the Iranian side. Mm-hmm. So are we kind of are, – are we waltzing into – a miscalculation here, because again, one small accident could lead to a very dramatic um, and precipitous war in the region that will bring the United States. I mean, we have two <laughs> aircraft carrier groups in the Mediterranean now. Mm-hmm. Um, we are on a war footing, or if not, a, a, you know, showing our, projecting our deterrent capability, but it doesn't seem to be deterring, you know, these little pinprick um, attacks, which, I mean, Again, it's only a yeah. matter of time before one of them is really successful, yeah?
1: So if <clears throat> if you want to forecast this sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, let's kind of spare a thought for the Americans here a little bit. Uh, unlike, you know, three, five years ago, et cetera, uh our position in the Middle East uh, before October seven was not so bad. I mean, uh, things were on many, many fronts. And this is where we're different than the Israelis. We don't have identical interests. And from our point of view, uh, you know, there's a rapprochement going on between UAE, fine, Bahrain, but most importantly, Saudi Arabia, right? With the Israelis. I mean, yeah, that's been going on for a while in private, but there's a lot. There's a lot to be said for a kind of public overture between Saudi Arabia, of all places, and and Israel and, you know, the Jews and so on, uh, as the narrative goes. Uh, And then this war happened. Um, And uh, for the Israelis, I guess, I'm I'm not Israeli, but reading their mindset, this is completely unacceptable and it can never happen again. And everything that's needed to make sure it doesn't happen again, we have to do it. Uh, And if other things are going to be compromised in the process, so be it. We'll think about that later. And that's like a very kind of Israeli strategic mindset. And uh, of course, for us, I mean, you know, we're, We don't. We are opposed to Hamas. We're upset over what happened, uh, but we have, you know, other interests too. And uh, and our other interest is making sure the regional order in which we have a huge stake is held together, more or less. Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia. We have a lot of things to worry about. Um, And that's the same reason we don't really want to escalate with the Iranians because it'll only undermine that position. I mean, we're obviously we're much more powerful than Iran. I don't want to, you know. Even This is not even a near peer competition, but uh, they can make things annoying and complicated for us because we have a lot of assets in the region. And that's probably also what the military doesn't want. And on the political side, we don't want it either. Uh, So there's there's a lot of kind of room for maneuver and room for violence before it gets to, I think, that sort of escalation uh, and where the red lines are so far. And I view that as part, you know, if not mostly a political decision, really more than anything else. In the United States, it could happen, sure, of course, uh, you know. But the Iranians also are not stupid, right? So they're uh, no, and it doesn't open.
0: seem like they they think now is is a an opportune moment to, you know, declare uh, multi-dimensional war against the United States and the Sunni world states.
1: No, no, you don't want that. They have they have a lot of stakes, in their own country's complicated. Hezbollah is like a crown jewel, is the very best paramilitary force in the world. Right. And uh, it takes, you know, orders directly from Tehran. Uh, why do you want to complicate these things if you don't have to? So everybody is kind of stuck a little bit. The Israelis are the only ones who, well, Hamas too, obviously, you know, they, they just want to prosecute this to what they view as a logical as logical extension. But, you know, if you're the one getting invaded and your people are being killed, it's different than if you're in the United States and you're, you know, looking at this with some level of detachment because you're a global superpower and your life is, you know, more complex than Israel.
0: Well, another another factor we sh- we might discuss is the fact that most Lebanese, in fact, a majority of Lebanese do not want to be involved in another war with Israel. They don't want Hezbollah to drag Lebanon down into the dirt again
1: Um because it's... Uh, I, I will speak to that for one second only because this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking to people about, you know, what what do people in Lebanon actually feel about this sort of thing? And I think the Lebanese are kind of victim to a lot of projection from outside on, uh, you know, what they want and don't want. I would say that, you know, there's a significant portion of Lebanese, I'm going to say one third, who just don't want this conflict anymore. And they just want peace with the Israelis tomorrow. And they want everyone, everything to go go forward with their lives. Uh, like everything in Lebanon, there's a sectarian breakdown to this. I don't want to go through that here because it's would be controversial. But, uh, but uh, you know, sect membership is a good predictor of how you feel about this. Uh, and there are, you know, those people who like, you know, they're they're like warriors. You know, they want to keep the fight going, and you know, Gaza is part of the resistance front, and we got to take the fight to the Israelis. But this is also a minority of people. Uh, most Lebanese people don't like the Israelis, don't think there should be peace with Israel until there's a settlement with the Palestinians. But other than that, I mean, they got enough problems, and uh, they whether that's the Shia or who would get hit the hardest of course in a war. Or, or anyone else. So um, yeah, the Lebanese are not interested. I mean their life is difficult enough. Israel has been t- has left Lebanese territory unless you're you know want to go with Hezbollah's lines about this village or that. Uh, so people in general have other things to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. So understandably, I mean the country as you know is in very bad shape. So well let's talk
0: about the 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 fortunes or lack thereof of uh the Palestinians as a political entity. I mean, Hussein Ibish, another friend of of ours, uh, wrote a very good piece in the New Republic about what Hamas has done has, in effect, set back the Palestinian national struggle years, if not decades. And it was done largely, I mean, there's a variety of reasons we can probably attribute as to why they would plan this uh, Al-Aqsa flood operation, but one of them was to once and for all completely undercut the legitimacy of the sclerotic Palestinian authority and Fatah, right? The rival party headed by Mahmoud Abbas. Yeah. Uh, and again, coming back to this point that they were catastrophically successful in this operation, which is now leading to in, their inevitable dismantlement, or I, I suppose in the 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 CENTCON parlance, degrade before destruction right so the the degradation of hamas if not the destruction of hamas severe degradation um, but but the, the the real problem here for the palestinians among the 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 more primary problem which is their uh, the civilian casualties and fatalities and the humanitarian uh, catastrophe that's unfolding in gaza is that in whatever may have existed in israeli politics as a kind of um uh, tolerance or indulgence of the notion of a Palestinian state living alongside and in peaceful coexistence with the Israelis, I think this is now evaporating, um, or if not, it has evaporated, and it's going to be very, very hard. You know, we we like in the West to talk about the radicalization of Muslims and people in the region or Arabs and, who join terrorist organizations, but nobody really wants to talk about the radicalization of the Israelis or the coarsening of the Israeli feeling toward their neighbor. And my concern is, um, however the dust settles here, whether it's going to be a full-scale Israeli occupation, which I do not foresee. I think it's probably more along the lines of they will maintain some kind of security apparatus, but they'll basically install the PA in Gaza and say, this is your satrapy, now you run it. Um, Whatever. Uh, I don't see a prospect, you know, the, 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 the interminable peace process has continued and continued and continued now i think it's dead at least for a very long time uh and i don't know if it can be rehabilitated um at any point in the the near or or midterm future uh and i want to also first of all I, i i'm keen to hear your thoughts on that um but i mean this is this is as as a one of the defining and signature policy issues for the region, pre- long predating 9-11, uh, and certainly, uh, the, the, the wars in Iraq and the intervention in Syria, where do we go from here now? I mean, how do you convince Israelis that if we give the Palestinians a state, they're not going to launch attacks such as this again and again
1: and again, right? Sure. Um. Look, I'm going to think, uh, this is very, it's very tricky, it's very tragic, tragic set of questions. Uh, Hamas, in the early 1990s, uh, launched this campaign uh, against Israel, uh, asymmetric, symmetric, whatever, terrorist attacks, because, like, very explicitly, they wanted to derail the peace process, right? Uh-huh. And uh, and there was a peace process back then, you know, uh-huh. as flawed as it is, but a lot of us, we were like, oh, maybe there's going to be peace between Israel and Palestine. Um I think this uh I honestly think this thing died a while ago, uh yeah. on both sides of the equation. Uh or I don't want to litigate why or whose fault it is or whatever, but the point is I think, you know, as of October sixth, twenty twenty-three, this had become something of a kind of bad joke. Uh right. uh, uh the the peace process. Uh and people had obviously begun to, I mean, harden on both sides really. And, you know, as we see, you know, for Israel's politics, for a number of reasons, not just because of the Palestinians, they've also changed over the past few years. And, uh, and, uh, and Palestinian politics, I think have just become like meaningless. Really. Uh, you have these people, uh, in the PA who I'm not going to hate on them because I, I get it. You know, if you're, if you're living in the West bank, what are the deals you can get? Right. And, uh, But uh, but I am not of the true believers that thought that this was any kind of decent long-term arrangement. I didn't think the Palestinians were going to get much out of it. Again, I'm not litigating why or how, but it just is my my reading of the situation. So this time, interestingly, Hamas. uh, I think you know we can speculate endlessly why they did this, but two important reasons. Uh, first of course geopolitical we could all agree it was not good for them what was happening with Saudi Arabia and uh, normalization and stuff like that but also actually now it's because I think they're realizing the PA is kind of hollow and it's disliked and there's no prospect of it delivering on what it was supposed to do now there are of course like true believers in the PA who still think you know mm-hmm. despite its imperfections you know that was the best deal going And then, you know maybe they're right I don't know but I mean If you're looking at from like the mainstream Palestinian perspective, this is an institution they no no longer believed in. And probably Hamas thought that this would put the PA on the spot and, you know, demonstrate how kind of bankrupt it is. It's pro-Israeli, you know, it's not going to come to Palestinians' aid. And that's, you know, that's actually really, whatever happens to them, it's very harmful, right, if you're the PA uh, and you're sitting and watching this play out. Uh, even if Hamas is, you know, dismantled, et cetera, you've got a major problem on your hands. And now they're supposed to take over Gaza, too, you know, okay. so it's.
0: But I, I, I can well I can well see the Israeli logic on this being that if we make Gaza so uninhabitable and, and otherwise ungovernable, uh, and this war has already taken a, a catastrophic toll on human life, um, people will take what they can get. And if it means a cessation of hostilities, uh, and we stop airstrikes, we stop artillery strikes, we stop bombing, uh, they'll accept Mahmoud Abbas. They'll accept the PA as basically their only alternative, right? I mean, it's very interesting. I I read um, Salam Fayyad had a piece in Foreign Affairs. This is the former prime minister uh, in the PA, Um, not a you know, not a and, and was seen as sort of like the, the pragmatic bricks and mortar state builder. I, I was a, I interviewed and profiled him many years ago. Um, to me, he was like the future or represented a version of the future that I think people both in the West and the region would have liked, uh, and then was completely marginalized and had no power. Fine. Um, but he wrote a very, uh, interesting essay, for a number of reasons but one which i was kind of taken aback by is that he believed that or he believes now that hamas needs to be incorporated into the plo because they have such wide representation in the palace in palestinian society or they're admired to such a degree according to fayad uh and that the plo needs to be completely reformed in order for any forward progress to be made and i thought this was a very um strange and cloth-eared bit of analysis from a guy who his entire portfolio, his entire project was premised on building a Palestinian state, but also delegitimizing Hamas and maximalists and extremists and showing that, no, we can have a state done by upper management, as it were, rather than by revolutionaries. And here he's saying that, you know, a group that now I see no Israeli ever, left or right or center abiding by having anything to do with hamas we need to bring them into the plo so uh, this this i I think we're in sort of terra incognita in terms of where this conflict is headed that guys like fayad are suggesting well you know we're gonna have to normalize with hamas at some point at a moment of hamas's if not imminent then inevitable demise as a political institution it's it seems odd to me but maybe i'm missing something
1: that's really interesting. I d I didn't read that article and I'd like to. Um I guess that comes down to the question, of course, without going on too tangent, is what like what does an insurgency actually want? And you know, and who am who what portion of the insurgency is, you know, amenable to to reconciliation? Look, uh the thing about Gaza, right? Uh is different than the West Bank. Uh, it's basically got the population density of a city. It's uh it's very small, uh, and it's kind of literally bordered by Egypt, which is, you know, off limits, the water, and Israel. Um, people don't really have a lot of options in Gaza. So it's not like the most fluid political or, or security environment. Uh, once you flood it with troops and, you know, people who are allies of the Israelis, etc. I think, the, I think the, you know, part of the thing about the Israeli, the Israeli strategic mindset, at, at least as it's evolved today, Is that, uh, or maybe since the second intifada till today, uh, is that this is a problem that needs to be managed at any one point in time, and uh, maybe in the abstract, like something might change someday, people may have a change of heart, I don't know, and you know we'll be able to live with the Palestinians in a normal way, Uh, but until then, this is a security problem, and it needs to be it needs to be managed and contained. Um, I don't necessarily have a bunch of better ideas for the Israelis. About what to do. But I do understand, though, that this is not an environment conducive to real political transformation and stabilization, whatever the problem is Hamas or not Hamas, but uh, it's just, you know, there's just no history or precedent of transforming an environment that way. Um, there are options about, you know, how you project governance, etc. But, you know, it's so fragile that all it takes is this operation of killing innocent people. And then you just appended you know, the entire country and for the next, I don't know, 20 years or however long it's going to take. So it's a tough one. Honestly, I don't have anything clever to say about this
0: territory. To be honest with you, I mean, reading the Israeli press and, and, you know, some of the best reporting on this subject, I don't think the Israelis know what they're going to do. You know, I mean, they're coming up with concept papers about, possibly ethnic cleansing and sending, uh, you know, Palestinians to Egypt or relocating them elsewhere. And uh, it, it's sort of everything is on the table. And, you know, this is all being done in uh, concert with con- rather manic depressive consultations with Washington, you know, which you're saying, <laughs> we know what you're going to do and we 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 are allowing you to do it, but we have to at least be on the record to say we don't agree with it or we don't agree with it, right? Um, which is not exactly winning hearts and minds in the region either, because it's a very transparent and cynical calculation. Let me ask you about speaking of um, cynicism. So, another interesting development, uh, and I think this was sort of wish casting on the part of uh, pro Palestinian observers, was that, okay, great. So, what Hamas has done, had t- tried to do, will be accomplished. In other words, they will upend normalization between Israel and uh, the Gulf Sunni majority or Sunni-led uh, Arab states. And we were in discussion, you, uh, Hassan, and myself, and we said, yeah, I don't think so. I, I think there's going to be a lot of thundering and grumbling. And, you know, I, I joked on another podcast that, you know, these regimes love to go on CNN and give, you know, very heated commentary to Christian Amanpour. But back home, it's the the status quo in terms of policy intelligence sharing security coordination of yes i'm I'm referring to jordan of course but i don't think that this is necessarily going to derail the so-called abraham accords or even long-term normalization with the saudis and there have been some minor but i think um powerful pieces of evidence to suggest that the saudis are not looking to tear it all up, tear it up and start all over again right um, they're looking to contain their population and to appear to be incensed and horrified by what's unfolding in Gaza. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it is it usually it seems to be um, rather a smart bet to put your money on cynicism and self-interest with respect to these regimes, not on some grandiose idealistic conception of, you know, resettling refugees and so on. Yeah.
1: Yeah, i get you. Uh, look, this is a good question. I uh, My my opinion on this is as follows. Uh, first of all, I distinguish between a population and the regime. Uh, because something may be palatable for a regime, but for whatever reason, the population doesn't like it. And obviously, right. we know with what's going on, everybody in the world now has you know, lost their minds and everything is very heated. And uh, and uh, you can't, like, as a regime, even if you're a dictator, obviously, you can't just do whatever you want, right? So. You, you have to think about what people feel. Uh, and that's real. Uh, that's a real constraint. Is it a lasting constraint? Um, I guess it depends what happens on the ground, but eventually this is going to finish, right? So it's not going to go on forever. And it's going to have an end. And it's going to look horrible or bad, but it's going to stop, you know, and won't be in the news headlines every day. I, hate, I mean, I sound horrible saying it, but that's just the way that wars go. Uh, I will say, I... In, in in my town in Beirut in 1982, if you forget this maybe as a historical parallel, the Israelis invaded Lebanon and occupied a capital city in the Middle East and killed, I don't know how many people, including a whole bunch of Palestinians, and no one did anything. So this was at a time when there was much more parity between the Israelis and, and you know, some uh, some of the other actors in the region. And then I think, you know, Hafez al-Assad, the head of you know, the so-called beating heart of nationalism in the Arab world, invaded Lebanon twice to make sure that the PLO was crushed. And, uh, and then life went on. Uh, I think that there's some legitimate and real angst if you're Jordan in Egypt, especially, that this might actually create a real strategic security problem for you, this war. And uh, if that I understand and I think is genuine. But those guys already have normalized relationships with the Israelis. Uh, the, uh, the other te- the other that, parties,
0: that, not to, inter- I mean, but, but that itself is question begging because you, the way you phrased it is a security, a strategic security problem. Not that they, to be quite frank, give too much of a shit about, uh, suffering Gazans. They're worried about no, their own I- borders.
1: I think this age of era politics where you had these regimes that were genuinely animated by these issues, I mean, it's finished, I think. And, uh, you now have these Islamist movements, which I don't think are quite down and out yet, although some people do think so, uh, who have taken place, but they're not, they're much weaker than these governments. Right. So, uh, I think that age is done. I don't see anything in the landscape like that. I need, but if you're going to push like 2 million Palestinians into Sinai, then yeah, you might have yourself like a real problem with the Egyptians, but, uh, or if there's like an uprising in Jordan or whatever. Well, I think that, that
0: that's that's actually the disincentive for the Israelis to do anything mm-hmm. like that, is they, they can't afford yeah. to lose off Cairo. They don't no care about international opinion anymore. They don't care about, you know, yeah, telling, no one telling yeah.
1: them to restrain their behavior. Um, yeah. They just no can't cares. afford
0: to sever no that me. relationship. Uh, no one
1: cares. Uh, I see this resuming as a, a diplomatic track. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe sometimes like you have to manage it a little bit differently. Like... I'll just say that MBS was like incredibly arrogant about this, and you know, uh, just like visibly and vocally dismissed the Palestinians, and made fun of them, and you know, etc. He probably shouldn't do that anymore, but uh, you know, his strategic alignment vis-a-vis the Israelis, yeah, I don't see those things changing. This is not the first war in the Middle East. I mean, you know, the, the, the it 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 <laughs> sort
0: of struck me as bizarre to see analysts who I mean have have studied and written about this region far longer than I've been alive suggest that the guy who had you know his enemy chopped up in a foreign consulate uh, is suddenly going to get a a dose of idealism about a the wretched of the earth in another part of of his neighborhood i mean it just the guy is interested, meaning MBS, is interested in building Saudi Arabia in his own vision and making a lot of money and uh, uprooting
1: extremists who threaten his kingdom. I mean, his, that's... His regime, yeah. That's, that's no, it. look, it's, uh, I think on this I'm pretty fairly confident that that's, yeah. uh, that's the way things will go. People
0: don't like to uh, hear this, though. They're still kind of wedded to the old romanticism, the revolutionary romanticism of the, the think, 90s yeah, yeah. and the 80s and all that.
1: I think, I think for people... Uh, whether you're Israeli or Arab or anybody who's, you know, it's the, there's a kind of degree of helplessness and unfairness in the world. Yeah. That's very hard to kind of wrap your head around. So people do in, time, in times of crisis, to kind of reach a little bit, I think. Uh, yeah. But I don't think there's anything to reach for in this geopolitical environment, unfortunately, and I'm sad to say it. So uh, that's where I think we're going. Yeah.
0: Any final thoughts? What What
1: is Not. keeping you up at night? Uh, what's keeping me up at night is people from Lebanon texting me about whether there's going to be a war, as if I know that, yeah.
0: Well, did you have a, but, a relative who visited you to spend about 10 minutes uh, bashing the Israelis and then they switched track to, what was it?
1: Yeah, bashing that? or making fun of Hezbollah. Yeah, look, this making is like a quintessential yeah. Lebanese package of, of feelings, you know, like... Uh, there's a feeling towards the outside hostile power, uh, but there's always, always, you know, this kind of predominant burning feeling towards whoever you view as your near enemy. <laughs> and, and every every is person. Who,
0: whoever is responsible for the, the petty inconveniences of life to which you are accustomed <laughs> on a day-to-day basis is going to earn more of your enmity than, you know, sort of the far-off abstract bogeyman.
1: Of course, and they have more time to earn it, right? Because so, yeah. they earn it every day. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things I've, I've been thinking about, um, you know, coming back uh, or, or to, to cite my friend Hussein St. years and years ago, he, he made a, an observation that at first I, I found a bit bizarre, but I I've over time come to agree with fundamentally, which is that in many ways, Israel has become more and more of an Arab country as time has gone on, both in its political orientation, uh, just the way that it does business in the region and the way it kind of has to kind of accept things, uh, not necessarily, you know, with the idealistic level of, you know, the, 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 region's only democracy and the sort of values-based policymaking, which I think more influences the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora in the West than it does the Israel. I mean, obviously they've been rocked by, you know, months and months of protests over this sort of. Constitutional reform, which is essentially authoritarian creep by Netanyahu. So there are certain red lines. But, you know, I mean, for instance, the idea that in every major city from Berlin to Philadelphia, there are protests on a day to day basis denouncing not just what's happening in Gaza, but, you know, the got some. I mean, in some of these protests, you see people who got killed in the kibbutzim referred to as settlers i mean basically they 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 had it coming oh and by the way it didn't happen you know the classic kind of paradoxical point of view uh and, and the israelis are just like look we don't care we're gonna do what we have to do um you hate us great you're always gonna hate us you hate us especially now because we're exercising power and we're doing the thing you knew it was going to happen as a result of this but there's sort of a, a shrugging attitude to it. And even with respect to the U.S.-Israeli relationship, I mean, people seem to be shocked that Joe Biden can't wave a magic wand and get the Israelis to do exactly what he tells them, because we subsidize their military industrial complex to the tune of billions of dollars a year. But I mean, that's just, that's the nature of a sovereign government with its own priorities and its own... Well, um, no, of
1: course, yeah. This is a, it's a myth that the... We just tell them what to do, and they do it. It's not true. So it's, uh, it's never been true. Um, and I think the more sophisticated and powerful uh, and complex the country becomes, the less they care what anyone tells them. And uh, that's, I think, also a natural natural state of affairs. Uh, but this is the tragedy, right? I mean, we're their situation, however <laughs> you want to trace it back, you know, 100 years, you know, October 7, whatever you want to put, is your benchmark. Uh, it's It creates this kind of uh, fatalistic, you know, uh, dark mindset uh, where you no longer believe that anything has a solution, really. Uh, and then you end up doing what they've been doing the past few years. And then, of course, what happens is, you know, this is yet more argument for saying, well, the Israelis, you know, they've got no intention of solving their problems with us. And then you have like more of this kind of barbarism and violence, and then the Israelis, of course, double down on their position. And this is what's so easy, what's so hard to exit from. And uh, I don't know that, frankly. I mean, this is nonsense talk, obviously. But if, without a third party, you know, to just come in and impose some sort of thing, I don't know how you get out of this. Uh, how you get out of this circle? I've never known how to get out of it, and I've been thinking about this for a very long time.
0: Now, you know, it, it, this is a particularly American phenomenon. I mean, the Europeans, I think they. They sort of pantomime it uh, as a result of the last 80 plus years of the post-war kind of liberal settlement of things but you know the the poet auden said he was british of course the americans are a a wonderful people but they have a very hard time understanding that sometimes there are no good answers to your questions and there's no solution to your problem right there's there needs to be in this modern world or this post-modern world a recognition of the fact that some things cannot be fixed, you know, and it's a very, very difficult thing because we fancy ourselves, the consummate pragmatists, There's, you know, any day now, just the visionary leader will come and the right, you know, the, the, the right little calculation or the right little tweaking of the. Yeah, of course. We'll solve the years. problem. Look,
1: uh, I have, uh, like immigrant syndrome, uh, you know, immigrant national security syndrome where, uh, I, I came to this country a few years ago. I love this country. And I love this element of it—that people actually th- feel that way about the world. Uh, it's very empowering, it's liberating, and it's it's charming. But yet, of course, wherever I came from, I know those things that you're talking about, and uh, so you kind of stuck trying to translate that into America speak. But also, America's—you know—it's a great country, and you don't want it to stop being what it is. So, uh, I think uh, I'm not unique in that respect. I think a lot of people who moved here from from abroad feel that way see, I
0: think I have the opposite instinct, which is I'm an American, and i'm I feel so kind of stultified and I don't know, bored by my country that i I seek out more interesting places all over the world where there is a sense of priority. you know, Ukraine is the classic example. It's like a shot in the arm. I feel like i'm I'm parachuted into, you know, nineteen forty one occupied France where the 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 willingness or the tolerance to consider much less argue about meaningless bullshit drops to zero very quickly, you know. It's I do no,
1: I, I do understand. Um, it's the high stakes. It's the you know clarity of the situation. It's the courage and heroism. Obviously, people acting to to defend themselves. You kind of I think you need both of these things to stay sane in the world. Like uh, you need. You need to know what it's like to be in that environment so you appreciate also well and this is I think this is, I think this is
0: the problem that most americans have is that you know even the 9 11 wars were far away really impacted only a fraction of the population mercifully Absolutely. so uh, and including obviously military personnel who went and fought um but we haven't been faced with an existential crisis or struggle and no. so, <laughs> the 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 sense of social cohesion has been absent for many decades, I think, and I don't no, know if it can ever be regained. Really yeah.
1: You know, um, well, you got China to look forward to. <laughs> well,
0: we'll see. I mean, even look, even that, it's it, what is it? it? It 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 would be a a conflict over Taiwan, which I think more Americans would have trouble placing Taiwan on a map than they ever did Ukraine or perhaps even Syria. Sure. <laughs> You know so it's it unless it it does devolve into some kind of conventional state on state war between the u s and China, although I, I, again, I'm leave that to the uh the china experts here, but yeah, no, watches, I think yeah. I think this is this has greatly informed our attitude to a lot of things, you know, culture, media, foreign policy, and you know there's a sense of of things running on fumes without real proper recognition of the reality how the world really works and how it has changed fundamentally i mean you said it yourself that this era of sort of great arab nationalist sentiment which was always rooted in the enfranchisement of the palestinians seems to be at an end and yet we're still we have this pantomime of it you know yes (laughs) interviews on cable news networks keep being given But again, people go home and they change the channel very quickly. Yeah,
1: of course. Yeah, understandably.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Well, um, there was a lot we could have also discussed, including how the this Middle East conflagration is going to impact the war in Ukraine. But I'll leave it. I'll let you go, and we'll leave this to next time. Uh, Faze, always good to chat with you. Um, And like I say, that this show is predicated on the notion that my conversations with my friends or at least interesting enough to me that I want to publicize some of them. So this is a classic example of that. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. Uh, You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigation at the Free Russia Foundation and the editor, uh, senior editor at The Insider. And my guest this week has been Faisal Itani. He is the Senior Director at the New Lines Institute. And we'll see you again soon. Cheers.